She Did It Her Way podcast, episode 248, Listen, Learn, and Leap with Eileen Gittens. Hello and welcome to She Did It Her Way, a podcast dedicated to helping you launch a business that allows you the freedom to create from anywhere, design your own schedule in a way that supports you, and pursue what it is that lights you up. I'm Amanda Bolin, your host, and it is time to do it your way. Before I get into today's episode, I just want to take a moment and say thank you. Thank you to each and every single one of you who has been tuning into the podcast. If you're new, welcome. This is an open community. We're all in it together. We are crushing and going after our dreams and building our businesses. And so wherever you're at, whether you're working out when you're tuning in, or maybe you're at home or you're at your job, wherever it is, I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me to show up in in your earbuds every single week and being able to bring these women, these entrepreneurs to share their wisdom so that you can go out and do it your way as well. Today's podcast guest, Eileen Gittens, has founded multiple tech companies, including the well-known self-publishing company, Blurb. She has a plethora of experiences in the entrepreneurship realm that we cover in this episode, from understanding the importance or how the impact of being on a sports team in high school or college can actually play into the discipline role of entrepreneurship, but also in corporate America, it doesn't matter which job or whatever you're doing. It can help bring discipline. We talk about discovering why competition around your idea isn't a bad thing and it can actually make your product better. We talk about knowing when to be honest with yourself and move on in your journey. I know I've experienced times where it's where I definitely should have moved on to the next thing, but I kept holding on to what was at that moment. So it's a really great discussion. We talk about a ton of other things. Understand the difference at being competent at a job versus being the right person, find out what to do when your marketing budget is low, and learn the value of communicating directly with consumers. Now, Eileen is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Bossy Girl. And in this uh, Bossy Girl, it's an e-commerce business. So it's a new platform enabling female entrepreneurs to create and grow e-commerce businesses. It's an app. You'll hear more about it in the episode. You should check it out. It's a really cool idea. And a, and a business that she's got going there as well, just to empower individuals, even at an earlier, younger age, to start thinking about entrepreneurship. Okay, friends, today on the podcast, we are welcoming Eileen Gittens, who is the co-founder and CEO of Bossy Girl, which is a new groundbreaking platform enabling aspiring female entrepreneurs to create and grow real e-commerce businesses, which I know you guys are super, super interested about. Eileen has founded multiple tech companies, including the wildly successful self-publishing company, Blurb, no big deal, uh, that she grew into a $70 million business. And then with her newest venture, Bossy Girl, she has made it her mission to change the current state of gender inequality in the workplace by helping Gen Z girls develop real world business skills, confidence and experience. So Eileen, welcome to the show. Amanda, I think you just need to travel with me wherever I go and just give that little pitch. That was awesome. <laughs> Isn't it? But but it's so funny because when we talk about ourselves, I mean, when someone's like, oh, what do you guys do? And I always like look to my friend. I'm like, oh, go for it. You can talk. <laughs> but that's it's not that's I need to get better at it. But yes, well, you it's easy. You have such an amazing journey and story about 
all the things that you've done, but I kind of give us in your own words, your journey and some of the highlights and pinpoints of what has allowed you, what has made Eileen who Eileen is today. Okay. Well, (laughs) no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. And save me from myself here at any time, Amanda. But I think I I have to credit my family and swimming first. Okay, tell us more. Family, yeah, family is about, I grew up in a family, one of four children. I'm I'm, uh, number two of four. And in my family, it was always understood that you could do whatever you wanted to and set your mind to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three girls and one boy in my family. And so there was no notion of girls can't do it because we were predominantly girls. Mm, <laughs> so there's <yes>. that. <laughs> there's that. And so I grew up in a world thinking, sure, you know, whatever. I can be a uh, president if I want to. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, not li- I did never want to be president, by the way. But the notion of doing whatever you wanted to do was clearly something that was inbred in us from a very early age and that we were competent people. And as a family, we were we were those people who were competent and smart and could get on with it. Mm -hmm. I am the child of immigrants. Uh, My parents are both British, um, came to the United States after World War Two. So, you know, Mm -hmm. to to pursue the American dream. Right. So, you know, in our country right now, the whole story about immigrants and yeah. children of immigrants. Yeah, I am one. <laughs> I am. Okay, so there's that. Yeah. Uh, the, sec- the second thing is swimming. And women often look at me askance when I mention this, but here's, here's my message about swimming. I don't care what sport it is, but if any of your listeners have daughters or especially younger daughters, um, encourage them to go into some competitive sport early on. Because here's what I learned from swimming, which I did not appreciate until much later in my in my life, in my business life, actually. I mean, early on, I thought, okay, you're fit, you're in shape, you know, all you the have two days are really great. Fun, you go to swim meets, you get to go away and sleep, you know, away from home, and it's really fun. But later on, I appreciated what was really going on was learning some real life and business lessons, and the life lessons were number one just get on with it. Just do it. Right. Mm-hmm. No complaining. And and for your women listeners out there, especially when, when I was a teenager, you know, get in the pool. I don't care if you have your period, get in the pool, mm-hmm. show up for practice. You show up for swim meets and you show up not only for yourself, but for your coach and your team. And you learn a couple of really valuable things. One is discipline. Um, when you're swimming at the level that I was, I was swimming l- later on, uh, you know, two hours in the morning and two hours at night every day. Yeah. Doubled up. And so you have to really organize yourself to get your homework done and to get everything else in during the day that you need to do around swimming, right? So you have to be very disciplined very early on. And the second thing I learned was honestly how to win and how to lose both. Oh, I mean, it's not often that people say like how to lose. Um, And I I definitely want to circle back to that later and dive more into that piece. Yeah. So that that was a critical thing. And I think a lot of women, unlike a lot of boys at that age, boys grow up playing little league and football and, you know, pick up basketball and they compete and they learn how to win and and they learn how to lose and they learn how to be on a team. So it's an individual sport and a team sport, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think a lot of girls, now it's better, okay, I think, but a lot of girls, especially when they hit 13, 14, care more about what they look like than how their body performs. Mm. And, and I think if you if you start early and you get into something you really love and you have friends, then you'll stay with it. And that those lessons are just invaluable. Later on in my career, get this, I had no idea that at my last company, Blurb, in fact, apparently we had hired a number of women who had been competitive swimmers. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Oh my God, I had no idea. Uh, you know, people that, you know, reported to somebody who reported to somebody who reported to me sort of thing. And I find out in the lunchroom, I'm like, oh my God, you swim? When did you swim? You swim for Santa Barbara, I swim for Cal. Oh my God, you know. So uh, it, there's something in that. There's something in that learning those life lessons learned early, not in an academic context, but in a in a team and sport context. I think we're very important. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine too, just when, you know, I'm sure there's times where you don't want to show up for practice and it's that emotional, like, ugh, do I have to go? And I think in entrepreneurship, there's times where we all get a sense of like, ugh, I don't want to do this. But you don't allow the emotions to dictate the action. You just create the action and then the emotions follow versus it letting like it just create your outcome. Oh, listen, I have a short story to tell you about this. So I was a sprinter, not a long distance swimmer. And we were in a team meet, big, Cal, you know, statewide meet, and we were competitive to win the state championship kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And this is when I was in high school. So this was a um, not a high school event. This was a, an, you know, American Amateur Athletic Union event, a big, a big event. Kids that went on to go swim in the Olympics kind of event, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the girls on our team had to bow out. She was genuinely ill like as in like fever ill she had to bow out and we needed a fourth person mm. on uh, for this this race and it was long distance and it was not my strong suit and I knew I I was mortified that he was making me swim this this event I Especially mean I the last one that I mean that's pressure oh I was crying <laughs> I mean I, I I was like 15 and sobbing I will be mortified. I will be so embarrassed. I will come in last. I will be lapped in the pool. Please don't make me do this. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and Don Schwartz was our coach. And he said, get in the pool. Because once you're in the pool, you're going to be swimming, not for you, but for your team. Mm -hmm. So get yourself out of the equation. It's not about you. This is about just get, just come in third. Right. Because if you come in third, we get points for the team. And, and, and you know what happened? I did not come in third. I did not. I failed. However, I won. Because I won because I realized that day that the team at that moment was more important than me. Mm -hmm. And I gave it my best. I really did. I gave it my best shot. And I came in fifth out of eight. So I wasn't the worst, right? Uh, but, but I did not, I did not make the numbers for the team and that felt really bad that I was not able to do that. But you live with that stuff. You live for another day and next time you figure, okay, how would I swim smarter? How would I swim differently? Mm -hmm. Yep. Assessing that. And it's such mental toughness too. being like playing in those competitive environments. And like you were saying, learning how to win and learning how to lose and carrying that through in entrepreneurship and the mental toughness and being able to just 
push through things and just get over ourselves, right? Take us out of the equation. How did you, now let's go back then too. So you're in, you're an immigrant from England. You are currently in um, San Francisco. You went to UC, was it uh, Berkeley to study English and journalism. And then that's where you discovered photography. So how did you, like, when did you start, like, take us on a chronological journey. So you were in school and then when did you start blurb or how did you come up with blurb? And I mean, it's, there's a lot of zeros in that revenue. So I want to talk about, well, you know, what were some of the things that you did that you attribute your success to marketing, things like that? Yes, totally. I will be quick on this part because I didn't go directly from university to founding a company. Right. I got very interested in photography through journalism. I became the photo editor, right, of the school newspaper. And I got and, and my dad was always a big photographer. I mean, we were the most photographed family in the United States of America, I'm convinced, right? <laughs> I mean, every everything was documented. It was crazy. Um, so I'd been around photography and cameras my whole life and I really started to get into it at school. And in fact, I went on to get a second degree at San Francisco State in what was then called multimedia studies, which was the emerging digital world of photography and audio, et cetera. After school, I got a job at Eastman Kodak Company. I stalked them for a year to hire me. There wasn't a job. I stalked them because I just thought that's the company I wanted to work for. And eventually they hired me. Um, I had wonderful opportunities with Kodak. I started out in sales, went into marketing, lived in, actually moved back to the UK, right? Because that was a, a fantastic opportunity. And very early in my career, I was in my late 20s, early 30s at that point, maybe not, maybe not even 30. Um, I was given huge responsibility to run uh, an operating division for Kodak in Europe. Um, So I, shockingly, as as the only female in the group and the youngest and an American, had to figure out how to fit in and stand out, right? Mm -hmm. And that was off, right? These were all older guys reporting to me from different nationalities, and it it was crazy. Anyway, learned a lot from that exercise. Came back to the States. Kodak was going through hard times, moved on into uh, software side of imaging systems. From there, went to Seattle, uh, joined a company. This is a very shortened version, but joined a company called Waldata, which was in the B2B uh, software, enterprise software business. And I was vice president of business development there. And I built relationships with companies like Microsoft and Apple and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, very successful pre and post IPO. Learned a lot there about how a corporation, you know, at that level where I was the only female executive in the company, um, how it operated. So it was pre and post IPO. It was a real wild ride. Learned a lot. Mm-hmm. From there, I wanted to come back to um, San Francisco, to the Bay Area. That that while data was in Seattle, wanted to move back. Uh, moved back, hooked up with some VCs that I had met along the way, joined a number of associations, just networked, basically. And what year was this in? Oh, my God. So this would have been in 2000, right around, no, about 1997. I mean, this is like pre what everyone, what we all, majority of us probably view Silicon Valley and everything. I mean, this is like early adopter stuff, like early, early. This is really early. I mean, I've seen it all, right? So, so yeah, and it so moved back to California, 
started a company uh, called Personify with a couple of guys out of Stanford. Um, it was the it was Web 1.0. Basically, here was the bet of that company. This was marketing analytics, right, for web-based e-commerce companies. Mm. We were betting the company that people would give their credit cards online. That was the company bet. Seriously, at that time, that people would do business personal business online oh my gosh see in my mind i'm like wait what what? like uh, why wouldn't we (laughs) right but at the time the web was sort of businessy and then there were some content sites you know and blogs but the idea of you know giving your credit card online and doing e-commerce so i was in e-commerce at the very 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 beginning basically Mm -hmm. and built tools that enabled that enabled marketers actually to understand who were coming to their websites and how they were behaving. It was sort of behavioral segmentation so they could do a job of, better job of designing the web experience. That's what I built, along with my whole team, right? And what happened there was, um, you probably, you may have heard, and your listeners may have heard about the crash, the web 1.0.com crash. Yeah, the early 2001, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had, uh, I suffered through that. I, my company was purchased by another company for bupkis, right? There's no hanging out in the villa in the south of France for me. Uh, (laughs) But I did manage to get uh, some employees jobs, right? And uh, have a a graceful exit at that time. I was also um, an outside board director at another startup. I parachuted in to help them find another happy home, which I did. Right. And then after three things back to back, you know, Kodak, uh, sorry, Wall Data, Personify and Verb, man, I just needed a cathartic break. I mean, it was crazy. Oh. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I started to photograph again and I started to photograph people that I had built companies with along the way. Right. These the fellow entrepreneurs. And it was just personal work. And this led to the formation of Blurb. Because one by one, when I started this work, um, this was now, you know, 2004. And at that time, um, you know, the only social media was, you know, um, MySpace, right? Wait, in 2004? Oh, wait, I would say MySpace was like 2005? Yeah, Yeah, four or five. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you said 2014 in my my brain. 2004. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Got it. I then maybe, yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't any way to share photos online. They're just, it wasn't possible. And so what happened was all these people who were the subjects of this work I was doing were asking for me to make prints for each other. And I'm Mm -hmm. one of those insane fine art printers. This is all black and white fine art photography stuff, right? And so, you know, they had no idea what they were asking, but it would take me hours to make a single print. And I thought, oh, man, there's got to be a better way. So being an entrepreneur, being someone who'd actually built e-commerce engines, right, and built software, I, of course, went to the web and started Googling, how do I make a professional-looking book in a copy of one, right, Mm -hmm. or for 25 copies, or how do I lay out a professional book, you know. And the answer was you could not do it at that time. The technology literally on the print end uh, was all offset printing, which meant uh, it's boring, but, you know, the minimum print one was 1,000 copies. Well, I needed 40. 
and I had visions and my husband's a contractor. So, and so all his tools are already in the garage. So I thought, where am I going to put the other 960 books, you know, box <laughs> of books, let alone the cost. And I thought, oh man, these are great friends, but not that great. So, so I didn't do it. And I just kept, you know, I just kept creating new work and photographing and I never, you know, every once in a while I'd share a print, but, but you know, I just kept looking back online for how do I get this done. And finally, uh, the love of my life, Jonathan, to whom I've been married like forever, said to me, um, you know, this is your next company. Wow. And, yeah. And I said, um, no one will fund it, Jonathan, because let me let me give you the pitch. Here's the pitch. You know, all this digital content that we're all creating now, because it was point and shoot cameras were taking over the world. Still not yet camera phones, right? Right. Point and shoot, it was going digital. And here was my message to potential investors. People are creating mountains of digital imaging content. It's so awesome. And there's no good way to share. So here's my idea. I'm going to take all that digital content back analog and we're going to enable people to print actual physical books and then ship them to them one at a time. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? And I thought nobody is going to finance me because everything was going online, right? Of course it was, you know, blogosphere, you know, wiki, everything was starting at that time. This is now 2005, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm just not going to, even though I knew that there was a big market for this, because as a photographer, I knew that every photographer, every amateur, hobbyist, all the way up through professional, nirvana for those people was to have a published book. Right. That was better than even having a gallery show. Gallery show goes up and down in a month. A book? You, you have a book. You have authored a book. That was huge. So... Finally, long story, I managed to get the company financed. I, I raised $2 million in the Series A round. And the story behind that was interesting. One of the VCs that had been, I had served on a, that outside board with, he was an investor in that other company that I helped find a happy home for. So I served on the board. I was a peer to him as a board director. And one day I was down um, on Sand Hill Road in you know Silicon Valley. Uh, and I was calling on some other VCs in his building and I went and looked at their site and I realized they weren't doing any consumer plays. They were all doing enterprise B2B stuff. And I thought, oh, I don't want John to have to say no to me. So, so I didn't hit him up, but one day I was going to be down there and I pinged him on email. I said, Hey, listen, I'm just going to be in your building. You're around. I'd love to say hello, have a coffee. So we meet, and of course, the reverse psychology works. The more I kept saying to him, John, this is not for you. He's like, I want more of it. The more he's like, well, tell me about it, right? So literally that day, we concocted, okay, so he helped me He helped me tune my pitch deck, and he said, all right, I want you to do these three things, and then, you know, if it is still look, is looking good, I want you to come down and pitch it to the partnership in a couple in a couple of weeks, right? And I had been looking for money for some time, so whoa. So very quickly, I got the first million, and then the deal was I had to go find another million behind it before it would close, before that round would close. And you would think that would be easy. No, <sighs> no, because it was so it was so not the not in in vogue, right, to do things that were analog in nature. 
It just was not in vogue. It was so counter to what everything, you know, to, you know, honestly, the mentality of adventure is very much when something's hot, everybody rushes to that, right? Right. It's so counter to that. Notwithstanding all that, I did finally get another million dollars, again, from somebody that I knew uh, who was down in Santa Monica, another VC firm, and then we were off to the races. And so the whole idea behind Blurb started with personal pain. I was trying to create a book, a beautifully published book, a high-quality professional book, not a photo album, not a tchotchke, not a little throwaway, but something that looked like a book you would buy in a bookstore, right? And it needed to have amazing image quality, amazing print quality, because if I couldn't get that, it wasn't worth doing because I was that, that kind of printer, Right. If it looked like crap, I wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up literally behind this, getting a printer up in Seattle into this business. And my pitch was, honestly, it was like, it's going to be huge. Right. I had no numbers. <laughs> there was nothing. Sometimes All you have to sell people on the emotion of it and get them excited, just as excited as you are and transfer it. That's right. I told the story. I told the story about photography. I told the story. I leaned on my Kodak years to tell that story and how emotional people will run into burning buildings to, to retrieve their photos. Right. I told that whole story and I, and I did come up with some numbers that were complete extrapolations. Um, and, and basically I, I got people into the business of creating books one at a time. This was a commercial printer. They were in the business of creating actually um, bind, uh, you know, books for Microsoft, not books, booklets that would accompany you know, physical CDs that went out and when it was box software. They did all of that work. But Microsoft was moving to CD-ROMs for all of their documentation. They didn't need physical manuals anymore. So this company was sitting there kind of waiting for an opportunity to move into a new direction, and I showed up. The difference was instead of shipping pallets of software manuals to Microsoft, you know, like, you know, 800,000 at a time and printing that kind of volume, I was talking about printing books of one Mm. and it would need to be shipped to individual shipping addresses one at a time and track back the shipping information to us and the customer I mean, all of this sounds so obvious now, but at the time, it really did not exist. Right. Because then, I mean, we're still talking early 2000s, like, or 2004, 2005 at this point, which I mean, from now, it's, it was 13 years ago. Yes, it was forever ago. So, so while I'm building this, so we raise the money, I'm building it, and it's like a holy crap moment because Apple launches their, their book product. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, it's Apple. I'm dead. Yeah. And then a company called Shutterfly was launching also. Um, so it was starting to happen. And this is what happens for, the, for your listeners. You know, when you have a good idea, an idea whose time has come, where it's sort of the confluence of a lot of different things coming together to create a business or market opportunity, you're probably not the only one who sees it. And, and I'm going to suggest to your listeners that that's not a reason to stop. In fact, you can actually leverage that, and I did. 
uh, in early press and media and for follow-on financing to say, if you're the only person out there doing something, you know, maybe the market's not that not ready for you or not that big. Mm-hmm. When you have more people, you have competition, then that demonstrates that there's a real business there, there's a real opportunity there. And then your job becomes just being at the best at the flavor that you do and being very clear as to who you're for, who your customers are. So I started looking at Shutterfly, for instance, and I realized, you know, they were really for moms who were taking pictures of their children when young, family photo albums, just like my dad took. I mean, my dad would totally have been a user of Shutterfly if it had been around then, right? But their interest was really just to capture family life and, and, and you know, personal bookmaking. I looked at Apple, and they were doing the same thing except Apple-ish, you know, with more style and a little more beautifully designed, but still very limited in terms of creating a real book. So we realized the way we would win would be to go up market, which, of course, was my 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 own experience set, right? Go after professional photographers, go after those, the people who are studying in art school, go after architects and people who use photography hugely in their businesses, right? Advertising agencies, architects, landscaper, you know, anybody who is using books for personal reasons to, to advance their photography business or skill or for professional reasons, it's almost like their portfolio, right, to show or thirdly, to sell, right? So that drove us into a space in the market where we were building uh, different trim sizes. So it wasn't, you could just buy one size, you could buy multiple sizes, different kinds of paper stocks, right? We perfected black and white printing digitally, which was really a bitch to do because you're actually using four colors to create a black and white. It's bizarre, but it's true. Um, so we did, yeah, we did all of that and we owned and still own that market. Well, and I was going to say when I was on your guys's website, I mean, one of the things that I mean, and beyond that you have from a photo book is you can do trade books, you can do magazines, you can do ebooks. And it's just it's really inspiring about especially now everything's captured with photo and we tell stories with photos that it's an even stronger reason yeah. to have it now. Yes. And I bought I bought out of HP. HP made the, the printers that a lot of our you know network of printers use. So we developed a relationship with them, too. And they had had this magazine product in their labs, basically, and I ended up buying it out of HP, and that became MedCloud, our, our magazine brand within Blurb. Ebooks happened because as a technology company, and we were looking to disrupt, honestly, the traditional publishing industry, well, duh, of course you're going to have an ebook product. So, so we built an ebook product, which brought us both into not only illustrated books, so you can see your ebook on your iPad or tablet, etc., but also into the world of you know fiction and nonfiction titles, which were largely you know word we called them wordy, without trying to sound too infantile, but wordy books. Um, so we are now very firmly in the book business and magazine business, print and digital. Period. And our focus are people who, if they're not designers, wouldn't mind being mistaken for one. And if they are professionals, can use our tools or Adobe's tools with whom we are deeply integrated 
to create their books. And as you mentioned at the beginning of this um, interview, Amanda, I, uh, I founded that company and was the CEO of that company for more than 10 years, longer than I've ever worked anywhere in my whole life. <laughs> it's like a three lifetimes worth, right? I grew it to over $70 million. And then uh, what happened to me was what often happens to a lot of entrepreneurs, and that is I was mature enough at that point and wise enough, having had a number of different careers, to realize that I am, where is my highest and best competency? You know, where is my strongest suit? And honestly, I am an entrepreneur. I love creating things from nothing. I love seeing uh, an opportunity that I'm passionate about. I'm very mission driven in that way. And so if it's something that really captures my imagination, I just was itching to go and do another one. So here I am running Blurb, and I'm, on the one hand, so grateful for this company that I built and so happy that I had been able to create a real meaningful business. And I love our customers. I love I love the product. I, I love everything about it. And yet, two things happened. I wanted, I was itching to do something new, itching for another problem to solve. And secondly, I got, I got honest with myself and that's very hard to do, especially when you're, you know, you've had a, a long career having been CEO many times. I got honest with myself about, was I actually the best person to be running blurb at that time? Was, were my skill sets the best attuned to really scaling the company operationally and making it more efficient. And, you know, when, when you're decent at things, you can do a lot of things. It doesn't mean you love them and it doesn't mean you're the best at it. And it doesn't mean it's the best thing for your business. And I feel like, yeah, and that's a really great point that you bring up because I, that is, it's almost harder when you're in this comfort, like everything's merrily, you know, it's not super crazy. I feel like I'm in a good spot. Do I love it? Uh, I mean, it's okay. Like, that place, whether like for you, you were running a business, this is 10 plus years, or even if someone's listening, they're in their full-time job, it's not terribly enough pain to make someone want to go look elsewhere to create action. But that that's a, um, a, like a difficult place, I think, to be in because there's nothing like a massive red light sounding board to be like, oh, you need to move or it's not terrible that we're like, oh, we need to get out of here. It's just that actually requires us as individuals to make that decision to move on. Oh, so hard. I mean, it took me more than a, more than a year. Yeah. To, oh, easily. Probably a year and a half easily to really, really grapple with this. And then, of course, extricate myself as graciously as possible. Um it, with my board, with the team, with everything. By the way, I am still, so even though I've extricated myself from day to day, <laughs> I'm still the executive chairman of the company. So I get to go to board meetings, not be at the pointy end of the stick as the CEO, which is just amazingly awesome. And I'm, I'm, I'm tight, right, with the company. I am still communicating. I have lunch uh, frequently with executives in the company. So I'm, I'm an advisor to the business and its chairman, but this has given me this wonderful opportunity now to move on to start the next thing, which became Bossy Girl. Mm. And, and really quick, before we go into Bossy Girl, I yeah. do want to like, 
wrap up that journey that you had at um at oh my gosh I'm like blurb. yeah blurb sorry I was thinking verb in my mind and I'm like no 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 that was the previous one but blurb if you could say what are like the three things that you can identify that happened while you were at blurb that allowed you to in like grow your revenue like what were the three things and that like any listener listening tuning in can then apply those things to their business yeah so the first thing was when we started we had two million dollars and that doesn't that sounds like a fair amount of money you know to get out of the gate but Remember, it's not like it is today where when you get $2 million, you've already built the product because there are all these amazing tools now that you can you can easily and need to build a product first and then get money. That wasn't true then. You had to build things from scratch. So the $2 million that we raised, almost all of it went to engineering. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I raised that money based on a PowerPoint deck, right, of what we were going to build, right? So... So we had no money for marketing. So my lesson number one, in a world where you are starting a business and you have no money for marketing, which was the case at Blurb, and by the way, is the case now also at Bossy Girl because we're bootstrapping, you have to become chief storyteller. That's your new title. Your new title is chief storyteller, and you have to get your butt out there and figure out how you are going to drive media coverage, whether that's traditional media through PR, whether it's doing podcasts like this. Nowadays, you know, you're um, maybe you write something and you get it published on Medium. You, your job is to get the word out, leveraging all the channels that you have. Now, back in the day at Blurb, the answer still at that time was was PR and in traditional and online media. So. Early days, we, we, we really focused on leveraging other people talking about us as best we could. So that was number one. Number two, in the early days, we did a very good job of, and because this is, this is something I learned early on, talk with your customers. And I don't mean in general. I mean call them on the phone. I mean, email them and say, hey, I'd really like to talk to you. Can you spare me uh, half an hour? I want to hear what you liked about the product and what you didn't like and what you'd like to see done better, right? And, And so that's what I did. I emailed people, literally emailed them as the CEO in the early days and said, tell me your story. And what ended up happening was I was collecting other people's stories about how they use the product, which I could then use in my own storytelling to demonstrate the point. So it wasn't me talking about my company. It was me talking about an amazing woman who got reunited with her family in Canada and through the book that they had done. I mean, it was just these amazing human interest stories, right? We had that kind of product. So, so that was number one. Number two was then get in front of your customers. So back in the day, we found events, right? We went to events. Sometimes we didn't have money to like go to a trade show, but we'd figure out a way to get a speaking up. We'd figure out a way to do something gorilla, you know, show up. We, I mean, we 
toys. We'd have like little postcards. We'd hand them out for like a, a percent, a discount off and try it, you know, and we had the photographs on the front of the postcards. So it showed, showed you the kind of book you would do. I mean, we were gorilla. We, we, we did whatever we could just to get the word out. Right. Mm-hmm. And it started to work. It, it really worked. So that was number one is talk to your customers, call them, reach out to them personally about the product. And then number two, wherever they are, networking, whether that's events or shows or whatever, go. You have to press the flesh. You need to talk to them if you can, depending on your business. You d- people do business with people. And I realized that even though our place of business was digital, people want to know who's behind the screen. And the more you can humanize your business in that way, the more people become attached to your brand and they tell their friends about you, Mm -hmm. right? So that drove number three, which was word of mouth. Okay. And word of mouth, it, you know, is your most valuable tool because if other people use your product and are happy, they will, they're so proud of what they've done with blurb. They're so, they're so delighted by the result. It makes them look better than they ever thought they could look. They want to, they want to, you know, show off a little bit and they want to share, right? And so for your listeners, depending on what their products are, if they can get their customers talking about them publicly in social media, on their blogs, in their articles, etc., do whatever you can to encourage that and to reward them for that in whatever way is appropriate for your business. You know, if it's free giveaways, great. If it's an invitation to come in and meet the team, great. If it's some individual coaching, great. Whatever it is, just find ways to engage your customers and get them to share your story for you. Love it. Yeah, I know. Marketing is so important and talking to customers even in a deeper level. So I'm like so grateful that you pointed out. And I know like even I can get better at that and talking to more podcast listeners on on the regular and getting a sense of that. So thank you for sharing that. Now, with um, we have some time left here. Tell us then, what is Bossy Girl and what's your vision for it? Sure. So I was doing a speaking up for Blurb in New York. After I left, I still do those kinds of things. And it was a publishing conference. And afterwards, I was surrounded by a tribe of young women who weren't asking me about publishing. They were asking me, how did I become a a female CEO and how did I raise money and all of that? And the one question that started Bossy Girl was from one of those women who said, do you think my chances for getting Fundy will be harmed if I have an all-female founding team? And I knew the answer was, yes, your chances are not zero, but they're not good. The odds are not in your favor, to quote the Hunger Games, right? So, uh, and I was very sad to have to say that. Of course, I, I followed up with some positivity there in terms of, but it's not zero, and there are some women VCs, and it is improving, blah, 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 blah. Well, I go back to my hotel room that night, and I start researching this, and I realized, because I hadn't had to raise money, right, for a long time, because Blurb was profitable. Mm-hmm. And and I realized it had gotten worse, Amanda, not better. The number, the percentage of women who were getting funding had gone downhill, not uphill, right? Mm. And I'm like, this is, and there's stats on this. I won't bore your your listeners, but it was bad. I mean, it was like 93% of all early stage funding dollars the year in 2015, 93% went to 100% male teams. Mm. 93%. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty eyesore, terrible, terrible, especially when, 
my friend sent me an article the other day. I mean, he he had sent it and it was just saying how even though female ran or run companies actually outperform those of male, there's still that massive gap in terms of venture capital and startup funding. It's true. And so that was that was that became my passion. That 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 was it. It was like, all right, all right. I'm at this stage of my career. What am I going to do about that? You know, the just do it part, right? Well, okay, that's not good. What are we going to do, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of um, thinking about it as a consultant or as a coach or mentoring or a content site, I'm a I'm a product person. I like build software and products, right? So I thought, what could I build? that would change that equation. And so it came to me that if we could get young women, like Gen Z, young girls and women, to actually learn how to be an entrepreneur by being one, not book learning, not in school, but like doing it, mm -hmm. then by the time they would enter the workforce, whenever that is, whether they're graduating from high school or graduating from university or, or, or a postgraduate degree, they they would be entering the workforce with a with a skill set, confidence, and the language of business, and that will make it harder for people to dismiss them when you have a young woman who's twenty two, interviewing for a job and saying, "Well, actually, I've had my own brand and my online business now for um, five and a half years, and we've been growing month over month by fourteen percent." Uh, my customer acquisition costs are X, my metro, you get the idea. Yeah. All of a sudden, <laughs> that is a whole different conversation. It would be very difficult for somebody to say you have no experience because actually you do. You, do. you actually do. You have been CEO. Uh, it may be a tiny business. Your revenue may be, you know, $61,000 a year and started out in your year one is uh, $4,000, right? But you, in fact, grew that business and you learned a lot along the way. So taking a page literally out of Blurb's book, I realized, wow, what we had built at Blurb was a network of print partners that would print products, books in this case, one at a time and ship them to a customer as there was an order. So there was no upfront cost to an author for, you know, the thousand books or God help them inventorying, you know, storing a thousand books or shipping them. It was all automated. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do that for young women. And so the products that they're going to care about are the products that they use every day. So it's going to be phone cases. It's going to be a gym bag. It's going to be a hoodie. It's going to be a t-shirt. It's going to be stuff like that. And then over time, will grow into, which we already are, more and more products that can be manufactured, printed and manufactured one at a time as there is a customer and where those underlying products can be designed by the entrepreneur using our artwork or theirs. And, and that's the mission is get them into the business of being an entrepreneur and learning as they are doing. Now, since we started, couple months ago. We've only been in market now since early December. So it's been just about two months exactly. And already, and this is amazing, it's, it's all about listening. So after we had our first 125 or so people who downloaded the app from the app store, it's Bossy, B-O-S-S-Y-G-R-L, by the way, Bossy Girl, 
It's it's an app in the App Store. After we had our first 125 people, you know what I did? Yeah, I emailed all of them. I was going to say, I figured you emailed or called them all. (laughs) Every one of them. I emailed all of them and I said, will you hop on a call or interact on email? And, And so I learned a ton about who was actually using the product, right? And here's what I learned. Yes, there were Gen Z girls, but there were two other segments that were emerging that might actually be even more interest and bigger. I don't know yet. It's so early. So the first were women, women who already are in business, who have a logo and need some swag, right? They're going to an event or they want a store where, you know, they have some great sayings that they use within their community and they build a t-shirt that says, let her rip, you know, whatever. Right. And that's their thing. And so as I'm talking to women, these women, they're saying, oh, no, you know, I just wanted a really simple and easy way to build some simple swag. I already have a logo. I can upload it on your app, right? I can use it. I just download it to my camera roll, and then I can use it for any mugs, what all hats, all the stuff you guys offer, and then I can link um, your the store to, to my website, right? It's done in an hour. Done. And I'm like, uh, right, didn't think of that one. <laughs> yes, of course we imagined that, right? And then the second group were social media influencers. Same thing. Mm. These are all younger women. The ones I ended up talking to, well, one one was really young, like, I don't know, like 12, maybe. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, honey, let me tell you. Oh, on on uh, YouTube. She's a YouTube star. She does, you know, um, slippy, slippy, you know, slime stuff. Oh, gosh. It's, it's crazy. It's just crazy. So I'm talking to this 12-year-old girl, and what she's saying is I want to create a whole line of hoodies, slippy slime hoodies. So I'm like, fabulous, right? So, And then she wants to have a store that she's going to link to in her Instagram, you know, the one the one link you can have in your profile. Yeah. She's going to create the slippy slime bossy girl store in her profile so that people who love her slippy slime – uh, will be able to buy the Slippy Slime hoodies, you know. So, and and I shared with her something that I learned. I created a Bossy Girl phone case very early on in testing. That has driven more conversation, business conversation openers for me than anything because it's a fun name, Bossy Girl, and the logo's cute, right? It so is really pe- cute. And people see me holding, because the, the back of my phone case is to them while I'm looking something up and they're staring at my logo and they're saying, well, what is Bossy Girl? It's seriously, it is the best marketing device ever. So all of your listeners, if you do nothing else and you have a logo, just make a phone, with us or anybody, just make a phone case and put it on your damn phone, right? Yeah. It will open up huge doors. So so that's the third group we found. Social media influencers who want a store, want to build products to further monetize their audience, Number two, women in business who already have businesses who want to create swag and other kinds of products for the audience they are already reaching and customers they already have. And then, of course, the first audience, which are are, are younger women and girls who are really looking to learn about business and about becoming their own boss by actually starting a little store. 
I love it. This is, I'm like, I actually, uh, I'm downloading it right now on my phone. I'm excited to try out the user experience and see like from an interface standpoint, because I, I would bet too, I mean, that is a, a troubleshoot of not uh, not being able to order enough inventory to heat, to hit minimums, but then also have to front the capital in order to purchase this and then hoping that it sells in the background. So I'm excited to get into this. And I mean, this is fantastic uh, yep. app that you've created. This is amazing. So I want to wrap us up to talk to us. Um, what is one book that you would recommend uh, to my listeners that you've read that you found to be really impactful in your business journey? Oh my goodness. I'm a voracious reader. Now I have to think about, uh, okay. One I really like is called, uh, make it stick by chip Heath. Make, make it, stick. it stick. And this is all you, we talked a fair amount about marketing. So this is a really good marketing book about telling your story in all the vehicles to make your story as powerful as possible, as emotionally resonant as possible and make it stick in the minds of your customers. Right. Mm -hmm. So that they can tell their story for you. Right. It's really a good book. Make it stick. Okay. I've actually never heard of that. So I will put that there. Um, Oh my gosh, Eileen, this has been amazing. And thank you so much for giving your time and coming on the show and, Definitely people need to check out the bossy girl. So we'll link to that as well. And then even looking at blurb, like I said, magazines, like there's so many content creators out there that knowing that we don't have to like fork out the capital in front and we can pay one off. I mean, that's incredible. So such an honor to be with you on the show today. And then if you want to give us the two URLs of where we can find more information on blurb and bossy girl, that would be amazing. So blurb is B-L-U-R-B dot com and bossy girl is B-O-S-S-Y-G-R-L dot com. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode. For more information, check out SheDidItHerWay.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love for you to leave me a review on iTunes and let me know what you think. Until next time, keep doing it your way.